Hello, I'm Derek Walker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. And today we're coming to the end of our 30-part series on the book of Revelation. And uh, we're going to bring it to completion. Last time we studied the eternal state in Revelation 21 and 22 up to verse 5. The remaining verses stand on their own uh, in Revelation 22 as the epilogue of the book, God's final words to us because Revelation finishes scripture. And these, this involves the final words of encouragement and warning from the angel that is assisting John in this revelation and from Christ himself and and then a final benediction from John. So let's go to verse 6, Revelation 22, 6. Then he, the angel, said to me, these words are faithful and true. And this is a confirmation that the whole book of Revelation can be depended on because they're based on reality. These things are actually going to happen. And in particular, the glorious vision of heaven and the eternal state will come to pass. And so we should live our lives on the basis of this as reality. And then verse 6 goes on, And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show his servants the things which must shortly or quickly come to pass. The, 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 the angel emphasizes that the same God who inspired the biblical prophets also inspired the book of Revelation. And since these have the same source, Revelation agrees with and expounds and brings to completion all the previous prophetic revelations in the Bible. We should also understand from this verse that Revelation is written especially for God's servants to show us the future that God has ordained. Knowing our future glorious destiny in God should inspire us and motivate us to give our lives now fully to God in service and worship. Knowing the judgments that are coming as well that will suddenly fall on those who don't know God as well as the eternal judgment of the lake of fire, well, that should motivate us to share the gospel with the lost. The book of Revelation talks, there it talks about the things which must shortly take place. In other words, these are future fixed realities. They're going to happen. They must take place. They're unavoidable. The only issue to be settled is which side are you going to be on? Are you going to choose to be on God's side and share a glorious future with him? Or are you going to side on the devil's side and share his future in the lake of fire? To make no choice is actually to choose the default situation, which is to choose the devil. Because we were all born in sin. And if we fail to accept God's offer of salvation in Jesus, uh, we remain guilty sinners before God. And we will share the the come under the condemnation of God. So we must flee to Christ for salvation. No decision is the wrong decision. When it says these things will shortly or suddenly come to pass, this is a reference to Christ's imminent coming in the rapture. Because, and this is, we're going to see this again and again in these closing verses. This is Christ's last message to us. I'm coming quickly. And this is a major New, doc, New Testament doctrine, we, which we call imminence. Jesus could come at any time to take his bride for himself in the rapture. And nobody knows when he'll come. He'll come when we don't expect him. His coming is at hand. And it will be without any warning or signs. And then he'll change our mortal bodies into immortal glorious bodies in the twinkling of an eye. And we will rise to meet him in the air and forever be with the Lord. So we must live alert every day, ready for his coming, because he could come at any time. Then immediately after this rapture, 
to take the, his bride, then he will move in judgment uh, in the tribulation. And after that is the second coming, and then the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then the great white throne judgment, and then finally the eternal state. So, in other words, the, the imminent rapture triggers the whole sequence of future events that the book of Revelation predicts. And that's why it says these things will suddenly come to pass. You need to be ready. And then in the next verse, Jesus himself speaks and personally confirms this declaration that these events will shortly take place. They're going to happen suddenly without notice because he says, behold, I am coming quickly or suddenly. Behold, Israel, wake up. Um, Jesus will come for his church, first of all, and then after seven years or more, he will come with his church uh, when he returns to the earth. But we need to be ready for our bridegroom to come and take us to be with him forever. And then that will start a seven-year countdown to the end, which, whereas the rapture is imminent, could happen any time without signs, the, when he comes in the second time to the earth, there's a seven-year countdown with plenty of signs and events that are well-defined that will happen. So people living then will know exactly when Jesus is coming. So there's a difference between the rapture and the second coming. So he's coming quickly. That's imminence. And so we must be alert and ready for that. And then he confirms the importance of the book of Revelation. He says, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, this is prophecy, it's inspired by God. To keep is to really treat something as valuable. You keep, you protect that which is valuable as treasure. You guard it in your heart with the purpose of living according to that revelation. So he says you must really study and meditate on the words of the book of Revelation. So it's in the middle of your heart and so you can base your life and values upon, and decisions upon these words. And the promise is that you will then be blessed. You'll be the recipient of divine favor. And, and the, Jesus said the same thing in the start of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads and hears the words of this prophecy and keeps those things written in it. So the promise of a blessing for studying the book of Revelation will be, is repeated here. Well, all these stunning visions and revelations are too much, even for the great Apostle John. He's emotionally overwhelmed, and he momentarily loses his perspective. Because verse 8, we hear, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Well, however powerful and glorious an angel is, He's still a creation of God, a servant of God, and shouldn't be worshipped. So John was very wrong, of course, to do this, which is why he's immediately told off. In verse 9, Then the angel said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Only worship God. You know, th these are important verses, actually, because they establish that we must only worship God, never anything that is created, even an angel. And that's what Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so that's a strong proof of the deity of Christ. Because in Hebrews, for example, God says about Jesus, let all the angels of God worship him. And so if Jesus is to be worshipped, he must be God. It would be wrong to worship someone who is not God. Thomas, when the resurrected Christ appeared to him, said, My Lord and my God, he worshipped him as God. Jesus didn't rebuke him, saying, Oh, I'm just a man. 
don't worship me. He actually accepted his worship and commended Thomas for his faith. And so Jesus was claiming to be God. If he was, if he was just a man, then a righteous man, then he would have told Thomas off for that. But he didn't. He received his worship, as he did in often many occasions. So Jesus is God. He claimed to be God, and God proved that by raising him from the dead. Well, verse 10, And the angel said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. When it says again, the time is at hand, that's saying the time of the fulfillment of these prophecies is at hand. In other words, it can happen any time, as we talked about. When the rapture happens, it's all going to start to happen. Uh, because in the, in the church age, it is imminent. And therefore, this prophecy is not sealed. Um, but it's interesting that, by way of contrast, Daniel, in Daniel 12, was told to shut up the words of his prophecy. And Daniel, of course, was prophesying about the future tribulation, the end of the age. He was told to shut up the words and seal the, his book till the time of the end. Many will run to and fro, and knowledge... That's knowledge of prophecy will increase. Go your way, Daniel, for these words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So why was Daniel sealed at the time of writing, while Revelation is unsealed when it was written, when they both speak of events in the tribulation? And the reason is that Daniel wrote before the church age and before anyone knew there would be a church age, and before the New Testament. And so he wrote before these events were at hand. They were still afar off. Never, therefore, it was impossible for him or anyone at that time to actually understand the meaning. But now we're in the church age, and we understand the mystery of the church age. In the New Testament, we, are, we got the prophecies of the tribulation in the New Testament also. And uh, we know that, uh, uh, for instance, that um, the rapture could happen at any time, and these events will be about to happen. And so for us now we are able to understand these prophecies in Revelation, and so they are unsealed. And the book of Daniel now is unsealed to us for the same reason. And Daniel actually predicted that the closer we get to the time of the end, his prophecies will become unsealed, and the knowledge of prophecy will get clearer and clearer. And as believers will go to and fro in the Bible, comparing Old and New Testament prophecies, and as a result, prophetic knowledge will increase. And the closer we get to the time, the clearer it will be. Also because certain prophetic events will actually happen on the ground that will make it clearer as to how things are going to turn out, like the rebirth of Israel in 1948. And all of these things are part of the unsealing of prophecy. Well, next, Jesus reveals the importance of responding rightly to the Word of God and especially the book of Revelation. You know, each person's eternal destiny depends on the choice that they make in their lifetime as to trust in the Lord Jesus and surrender to Him as Lord or, or to reject Him and His gracious offer of salvation. Um, Jesus now talks about the serious and everlasting consequences of making the wrong decision and how urgent it is to receive him as Savior and Lord. Again, to make no choice is to make the wrong choice and be lost forever. At the end of each man's earthly life, he f will face a final judgment by God, and this will then be irreversible. This will either be at his death or at the Lord's coming, whichever comes first. And that judgment will, will fix his eternal state forever. 
it will be too late to change and it will be forever and that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 11 he says he who is unrighteous let him be unrighteous still he who is filthy or unclean or unholy let him be filthy still in other words if you reach you at the end of your life and you're still in your sins because you haven't accepted Christ but you haven't turned to God then you will remain in that state of unrighteousness forever if you have no right standing with God because you didn't receive Christ's forgiveness and righteousness then you will be in that state forever if you're a sinner which is who is unholy in their nature then that's how you will be for the rest of eternity and you'll only be fit to be thrown into God's rubbish tip which is the lake of fire then Jesus gave the other side of the issue which is encouraging to believers he who is righteous let him be righteous still he who is holy let him be holy still in other words if you die in Christ with his righteousness and with his holiness through the, your new birth uh, as a child of God then that will be your state forever and ever you'll be sealed into a state of righteousness and therefore there are two and only two opposite eternal destinies for any man and they are fixed forever at his death and that's what Ecclesiastes 11.3 tells us it says if a tree that's a picture of a man falls that's a picture of his death to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls there it shall lie in other words he falls now he either falls to the south which is pointing away from God or he points to the north pointing toward God Psalm 75 uh, 6 says that exaltation doesn't come to, from the east, west or south, but it comes from the north. That's, the, as it were, symbolic of God's direction. In whichever direction he's pointing, when he dies, he will remain in that state forever, whether it's in, God, it, uh, in heaven with God or in hell with Satan. So that's a strong warning to make a decision. Jesus then declared in verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly. There he said it again. And my reward is with me to give every man according to his work. And again, this repeats verse 7. I'm coming quickly. I can come at any moment. You need to be ready. And this adds urgency to the previous warning. Not only is our death imminent, if we're honest, we could die at any time. It just takes our, our heart to stop working. Uh, but also... His coming in the rapture is imminent, and then it's time for judgment. Then it will be too, too late to change our mind. And so, it, the fact that he's talking about the rapture is also confirmed by his next line, which he says, when he comes, he will give to everyone according to his work, his reward. So that tells us that in the coming, in the rapture, he is coming for the believers, to reward them. In the second coming, he is coming to judge the wicked. But in the rapture, he is coming. And straight after the rapture, we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he will reward us according to our faithfulness. So he's talking about the rapture here. And so he is saying that, in fact, it's not just an issue for unbelievers that they must receive Christ because he's, when he comes, it will be too late. But he's also saying, believers, you need to wake up too because you are, will also face a judgment when the rapture happens. It will be not a judgment for your salvation, but it will be a judgment of your works for, to determine your eternal glory, your eternal rewards. And that makes a huge difference, 
how much glory, how much authority, how much joy you will have in eternity. How, what measure of life you will have in eternity depends on how you are faithful now. So he's saying, wake up, live for God right now, because I could come at any moment, and then you will give an account to me. Well, the speaker in the last verse is Christ, and so Christ is still speaking in verse 13, when he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Uh, and these are clear declarations of deity. Only God has these titles. And the risen Christ made the same claims in chapter 1 when he appeared to John in the first place. And so this is clear proof in the book of Revelation that Jesus is God. We must submit to him as Lord and as God and worship him. And so these final words that he is speaking here, they come with the full authority of God, and we should submit to them as God's word. And then he says, blessed are those who do his commandments. But there's a manuscript alternative which um, the, the older manuscripts have, which I think is probably better, which says, blessed are those who wash their robes. That they might have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Well, I prefer blessed are those who wash their robes in the blood of Jesus because this is clearly a salvation verse as to who enters the kingdom of God. And that agrees with the New Testament teaching that salvation is by grace through faith, not from our works. But the alternative reading that uh, blessed are those who do his commandments, you know, that could give the impression that we are saved by our law keeping. But who, who could possibly do that perfectly? But we can see these two readings as consistent, if they understand them properly, that we are saved by grace through faith, but since saving faith involves a submission to the Lordship of Christ and receiving a new nature and the Holy Spirit uh, through the new birth of our spirit, then surely if we are saved that will result in a changed life in which we seek to do God's will and obey his commandments. And so the truly saved will show their faith by their works. And that agrees in Matthew 7, 21. Jesus confronts people who claim to be believers. They call him Lord, but they do not do his will. In other words, they don't show any evidence of a changed life. He tells them that they never knew him. They were never born again, actually, because they never surrendered their heart to his lordship. He's not saying that their actions saved them, because he says that salvation comes through knowing, knowing him. He says, you didn't know me. That was your problem. You never knew me. And in other words, they never came into a personal relationship with him through receiving him as Lord and Savior. But he, he's saying that if they were saved, if they really did know him, then that would show in, their, in an obedient life. And so it's not that perfection is required to be saved, no one could be saved that way. But a genuine faith will result in works. And, and this word blessed, it says blessed is he whose robes are washed. Uh, blessed in the simplest word is happy. And so it's saying that the key to happiness is holiness. Uh, the blessedness of salvation is eternal life, the eternal life of God, access to the tree of life, an entrance into the city, entrance into the presence of God, and having citizenship in the, 
in the kingdom of God. And then he gives the other side, but outside, he says, are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, whoever loves and practices a lie. And this describes the unsaved, that it's talking about their nature, uh, what they are like and what all of us would be like without Christ. Those who don't submit to his lordship and receive his salvation stay in a state of sin forever and they are excluded. The righteous are characterized by a new nature and lifestyle, so the unrighteous are characterized by their, their sinful nature and lifestyle, which now they have embraced for themselves. They love that. And instead of repenting of it and turning to God to ask them to change them. So their root reason for being lost is actually their rejection of God's grace in Christ because only God's grace could transform their nature and give them power to live a new life. A born-again believer may commit one of these thing, sins because he's still got a sin nature in his flesh, um, but that sin contradicts his real nature in his spirit. He knows he's sinned and he repents. A believer, however, who stubbornly continues in sin, violates his conscience, violates his commitment to Jesus, or violates the wooing of the Holy Spirit, is in danger of embracing that sin so much as defining who he is that as a result he could lose his salvation because in effect he'll have rejected Jesus as his Lord. And so the curse and the condemnation of this verse isn't for those who may on occasion commit such a sin, but those who've so embraced that sin that it's become part of their nature and their lifestyle. And this would be true for all of us if it wasn't for Christ's grace. So we must surrender to Christ, surrender our souls to him, and let him save us from the power of sin. Then Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And so again, Jesus declares who he is. He says, I am the root of David. That means he is the origin of David. That means David comes from him. But then he says, I'm the offspring of David, which means he comes out of David. It seems to contradict. But the paradox is solved when you realize Jesus is both God and man. As God, he's the root of David. As man, he's the son of David, the offspring of David. He's, he's saying, I'm both God and man. Just in Revelation 5.5, he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also he's called the root of David. And then he says... I am the bright morning star. And this is a reference to the rapture. In Revelation 2.28, Jesus promised, I will give him the bright morning star. In other words, the morning star is a manifestation of Jesus to believers. And one Peter, 2 Peter says that the morning star will arise in your hearts. And what he's talking about is that before Jesus comes as the son of righteousness, bringing dawn, the dawn of a brand new day of history, he will come while it's still dark as the morning star. He will rise. He will appear just to believers who are looking to him and his glory will burst out of our spirits and transform our bodies. It's talking about the rapture, the morning star. He will give himself to, to us as the morning star. Then verse 17, it says, Then the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. And this could mean preaching the gospel and saying to the world, Come, come to Jesus. But I think the better interpretation of, this, of these verses is that now the spirit and the bride are saying to Christ, Come. 
See, Jesus has been saying, I'm coming quickly. And he's saying, I'll be the bright morning star. And in response, the bride, it's the bridegroom who's coming for the bride. And so the bride cries out, come, Lord Jesus. And the spirit within the bride. And so the spirit and the bride are one because she's born again. And the spirit inspires the bride. And together they call out for the Lord to come and to be reunited so that their love may be consummated and they might be together forever. That is a, a romantic response to Jesus coming soon. That should be our prayer, Lord, come soon. And, uh, and, and, and it's the bride calling out for the bridegroom. And then there is the gospel invitation in verse, the next verse. Let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And this is another confirmation that salvation is by grace. He says, God offers us the water of life. In the start of Revelation 22, the river of life flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. And so you have to come to Christ on the throne of God, submit to his authority, and then you will receive the water of life into yourself. You'll be born again, and it's by grace. And that's how you're saved. And now we come to the final verses, which warn people against rejecting revelation and rejecting the word of God. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things written in this book. And so he says, the, the book of revelation is the word of God. Do you do not dare take away and deny that it its words are true. Don't add to the word of God. In other words, the book of Revelation now completes the Bible and you are not to add anything to it like cults often add their own writings to scripture. And then it says Revelation must be interpreted literally. Don't change the meaning of it. Take it in its plain meaning. And then he says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Again, he says it again. I'm coming quickly. And then the response is, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's our response. Again, the bride saying, come, Lord Jesus. And so, his last message in Revelation, three times he says, I'm coming quickly. I'm the bridegroom, coming quickly. Make sure you're ready. And then John finishes the book of Revelation with a benediction. Verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And this is a reminder that once you're saved by grace, we need God's ever-present grace with us to live our lives to glorify God. The grace of God be with you also in Jesus' name. My series on the book of Revelation, which goes right from the beginning all the way through to the end, verse by verse, is, was actually 29 messages in all of half an hour. And we've had at requests that... Uh, people can have the whole series together. So we've put these series on seven DVDs and you'll get all 29 episodes on seven DVDs and it will be 70 pounds and you will have all of those teachings together on that DVD series which you can use to, to show in, in home groups and in different contexts. So let me encourage you to get the whole series.